Welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissing. And this is a show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts. We ask the experts. Our fantastic expert guest this week is the former Deputy Mayor of London for Education and Culture, who now works in the arts, Munir Mirza. Welcome to Trigonometry. Hi. Is a journalist and a researcher at Sheffield University. Remy Adekoya, welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks for having me. Our amazing expert guest this week is Brendan O'Neill, who's the editor of Spiked Online. Brendan, welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you very much. He's an Australian economist, the CEO of Lateral Economics, and a self-styled general pontificator. Nicholas Groen, welcome to Trigonometry. Tell us a little bit about what's happening in Australia. One of the things we talk on this show a lot about is the culture wars and all yeah. this kind of stuff. Where are you guys with that? What's well, happened? I think we were in a very good place in the 80s and 90s where we led the world in economic policy and we had a government. Uh, in fact, there was a bipartisan consensus on things like race, gender and so on, and that broke down as... You could, you, if you were looking to blame the Labor Party, you would blame Paul Keating because he was, a, who was the Prime Minister from ninety, uh, from nineteen ninety one to nineteen ninety six, and he was very divisive. But he was still part of the bipartisan consensus, which didn't go after culture wars. But then on the on the change of baton to John Howard as Prime Minister, it's kind of he famously was very insightful in revving up what seems to have been latent in the Australian psyche, which is that if if white Rhodesian farmers were boat people floating off our coast, I'm sure we would have uh, wanted to save them. But if they're brown people from the Middle East or Asia, not so much. And so we've slid into a, a, a pretty unpleasant uh, state of affairs where, um, uh, you know, where... where um, well, we um, uh, are keeping keeping people out now. Of course, we have to keep people out. There are 60 million refugees who, not all of which could come to Australia, but it's appropriate that we don't just say any old any old person can come in here. But the lengths that we've gone to in dehumanising people is 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 a national is a national shame, and most people feel it. Um, but there we are. It wins elections and neither of the major parties, a bit like Brexit, where the elites sort of uh, kind of appreciate it might, might not be the greatest policy. They think that the people will crucify them if they move away from that policy. So we've got something similar going on in Australia. And do you think that that policy has been brought about because of racism or do you think it's brought about through other things as well like we had one particular guest on who uh who you know who was saying you know that it's because they want to keep the reason we voted for brexit is because we want to keep british culture intact mm. do you think that is what is going on in australia or do you think it's more overt simply that the distrust of another before culture? you answer that sorry francis that interview will come out after this one so francis has given you a tasty preview of our interview with eric kaufman who'll be out in a couple of weeks that's what i like about you it's just an advertising that's right. <laughs> so anyway, Nicholas, go ahead. I, I'm a believer in presumptive generosity. When you're interpreting people, it makes sense to try and interpret... The, it, you're trying to make as much sense of what they're saying and doing and the way they're acting as possible. 
And it's a perfectly legitimate. Uh, it's a perfectly legitimate thing to say that we've built a great society here, certainly better than many societies around the world, and we want to protect that. So, so I don't have any I, people who feel um, anxious that too many migrants are coming in from very different cultures. Um, I don't feel that way, but I don't demonise that. Uh, I don't demonise that at all. And then there are some racists. Then there are some very small-minded, bigoted racists. But I don't. Th that's not the way I look at the debate in Australia um, or anywhere else, really. So you think it's cultural, essentially? It's cultural, and it's perfectly legitimate to say we say, as the Japanese say, we are proud of our culture and it's not compatible with too many people coming in here because then it'll be a different culture. I think people underestimate that. They underestimate the extent to which a culture can remain, can protect the best parts of it uh, and then become more exciting. Um, we have a commentator in Australia called Philip Adams, who I, th I think his line is that we invited a lot of uh, European migrants into Australia and found that it was so much fun, we wanted more. So, so that's my attitude to immigration. But, but you know, I'm not an open, I'm not, I, I'm not an open door policy person either. Um, I'm in favour of a of a vigorous and expansive immigration program for Australia, and I respect people who want to. I don't, I don't hold up the, the cross and say you're a racist if people feel differently. So your concern is how those refugees are treated, essentially? On uh, Well, I don't want to... Uh, one of my concerns is self-righteousness. So it's very important for me not to be self-righteous about this because I'm a privileged person who's going to say to a desperate person, sorry, you're not coming. Mm. And whether I draw that line at 200,000, 300,000, 400,000, a million a year, and at the moment it's uh, something like 200-odd thousand a year, um, I'm going to be just as much of a bastard as anyone else. <laughs> so let's get off our high horses. Let's try and make ourselves as comfortable as we can be with a policy, uh, whatever policy we come up with, and we will be making heartless and cruel decisions, nevertheless, let's make them as, uh, let's minimise that and let's feel as good as we can about it. And locking up little kids on uh, on islands off, off, off Australia without any judicial review, that's, there's nothing good about that. Doesn't make people feel good. I mean, numerous people have died who needed medical attention and didn't get it. Um, I raised $10,000 for refugees at a party about a month ago, and a great writer of ours, Christos Tsoukas, read the names of those people. So I feel very strongly about this. I don't feel self-righteous about it, and there's a big difference. My father was a refugee, so that's another reason I feel strongly about it. So do you think the Australian government, oh, I think you've just intimated, is unnecessarily cruel in their treatment of refugees? Totally. Well, what would you do if you have my view or anybody else's view and you know that there's a kid on Manus Island who's self-harming, who has pneumonia, who needs medical attention, and you say, oh, well, they might be, they might be uh, pulling our leg, they might be pulling a stunt. They probably are pulling a stunt, OK? But they need medical attention. Uh, and we should be giving them medical attention, and we're not. Whenever I watch an Australian comedian at a comedy club, the first joke they make is about Australia being a racist society, yeah. and it always gets a big laugh and everybody claps and cheers. Is that true? 
Or is uh, or would you well, say we're that... all racists? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, of course we're all racist. I mean, you know these tests on basketball umpires. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I have a friend. I just had I just had a cup of tea with a friend who uh, he's a Dutchman and he organised or he was instrumental in organising an experiment on buses where people got onto a bus and said to the bus driver. I'm really sorry, I don't have any money, I just need to get to the next stop, would you mind me riding to the next stop? Uh, now, these numbers are made up, but they're indicative, so just assume they're right for the for the purposes. The 71 or 2% of people had yes said to them. Oh, sorry, about 65%, but if you were white, it was much higher. If you were black, it was lower. And those bus drivers, I don't think they were black-hating racists, but so, so let's let's relax about these things. Let's get let's not get too much on our high horses. Theresa May announced when she became prime minister that she was going to tackle burning injustices in society. And one of the uh, announcements she made was that, that the government would run something called a racial disparities audit. So it would look at how different ethnic groups fare in British society, in the public services, so the NHS, in health, in education, but also in areas like employment um, uh, uh, and uh, other kinds of you know, discrimination, policing, criminal justice system, and so on. And um, the report was published last year, or the, a website um, was launched that, that showed these statistics. And interestingly, the, the audit revealed that the picture is very complex. It's, it's not clear-cut that white people always do better and ethnic minorities always do worse. In fact, there are some areas where ethnic minorities are doing really well. Um, so if you look at the NHS, for instance, about a third of doctors in the NHS are BME, uh, the non-white, or a third of senior consultants in the NHS are non-white. So um, there are some areas where actually there's a real success story, there's something to celebrate. But when the audit was published, all the emphasis from government and from the media was on the negatives, where I think minorities are not doing well. And it perpetuated what I thought was a very negative, um, uh, inaccurate picture, really, of British society. You know, it, it, it reinforces this idea that ethnic minorities are being systematically oppressed, that there's a kind of institutional problem. Um, when, in fact, what we've seen in the last 20 years is a kind of liberalisation and opening up for many people. And my, my worry has always been that when you tell that negative story, it both, you know, it, it skews policy. It means that people make bad policy decisions because they think they're trying to correct something that's actually working quite well. Mm. But it also reinforces for a lot of younger people this idea that they can't succeed. Mm. And that, I think, can have quite a big material impact. It can mean that they're not motivated to go out, apply to university, go and be ambitious, seek good jobs, because they'll think that they've always got uh, a kind of white, racist uh, decision-maker who's holding them back. And I, th I think that can create a lot of tension and division in the society. If you're constantly telling people... Uh, um, from ethnic backgrounds that, that this society is against you. That's not going to be great for uh, engendering harmonious social relations. Mm. You know, they're going to be resentful. Oh, you've it. made the point even further, actually, that, for example, a black defendant who's suspicious about his lawyer is more likely to make a bad decision, for example, to plead innocent when, in fact, they should plead guilty. Mm. And as a result of that, you end up with young black men getting harsher sentences yeah. because they don't trust the system and they don't do the, what they ought to do kind of in a percentage place situation. 
Yeah, so the, this, you know, the criminal justice system report, which was authored by uh, or led by David Lammy mm. MP, uh, showed that there, there was this disparity. I mean, in many other areas, many other parts of the criminal justice system, the, the disparity between ethnic groups can be explained by a number of different factors. The fact that there are, you know, proportionally a higher number of black men in, um, uh, in the criminal justice system uh, is, is, you know, there are reasons for that. You know, there are higher proportions of arrests, you know, the, the, you, know, the, uh, you know, you can go into the detail of that. But there was one disparity which was interesting in that report, which is why is it that um, black men are more likely to receive harsh sentencing? And they found, interestingly, as you say, that, that they were uh, not pleading guilty because they didn't trust the advice of their solicitors and they didn't trust the system. And that's, a, I, th- I would argue, is partly a result of not completely, but it's partly a result of their fear that the system is going to be prejudiced against them. So it has this really counterproductive effect. It's, you know, damaging to their life chances, really. And the same thing's happened in other areas like mental health, for instance, where um, we know that there's been a huge amount of debate and discussion about whether the institutional, there's institutional racism in the mental health system because a higher proportion of ethnic minorities are likely to appear in the system and to be detained, forcibly detained, which is obviously worrying when you look at the statistics and think, well, why is it? You know, are they more likely to have mental illness? Yes, they are, actually. You know, there's lots of good research to show that they're, for all sorts of reasons, they have higher risk factors. But also what, they, what researchers have found is that uh, a lot of people from ethnic groups are worried about how the system is going to treat them. So they don't report until it's almost too late, until their, their condition has worsened to a point where they may end up being violent to themselves or other people. And at that point, they need to be forcibly detained. At that point, the police get involved. And, and, and you have a very different... The system has to react differently to you. So the thing that frustrates me is that people use these statistics almost with a political agenda to try and prove a point about systematic racism. But the effects of that is even more damaging. And if we were more honest, if we were looking at the statistics more dispassionately, you would see that it's just a a really complex picture. And and I I think ethnic minorities are, you know, the, the ones who suffer the most often, you know, because no one's really thinking about their interests as... You know, as individuals in the system, they're just thinking, how can we make a political point? How can we show that we're virtuous? You know, I think in the, in the, in the case of the government, I think the government was trying very hard to show that it wasn't the nasty party anymore and that, you know, they, they care about these vulnerable groups. But in doing that, they, you know, they, they have perpetuated a lot of these uh, perceptions and this very negative story. Francis, can gonna... you say something really loud to my... I was going to say, this <laughs> is going to... helicopter that's just decided... See, we keep telling you a trigonometry that no one wants us to be having these conversations. <laughs> There's a fucking helicopter hovering above us. In the, uh, in the... By the way, we forgot to explain at the beginning of the interview that uh, we're on location, as we told you last week. Um, and we're one of what? our big fans is... Is it quite literally just above it? Yeah. yeah, there's a helicopter hovering above us, just recording everything and reporting us to the police for a hate crime. <laughs> there we are. Yeah. We're gonna put I think we're going to have to make a run for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we, are, yeah. we are actually going to have to leave. <laughs> yeah. And uh, as, as the, as the uh, white man, I am going to get off scot-free, so see you all later, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but Typical. Uh, typical, exactly. But there's one thing that we didn't cover. When we look at these stats, and I, as a former teacher, I do find it incredibly interesting, um, is working, white working-class boys always at the bottom when it comes to stats. And I sometimes think that if it had been, you know, working class black boys, working class Asian boys, there would be a massive outcry about it, rightly so. But because it's working class white boys, we tend just to shrug our shoulders and go, oh, well, what can you do? Let's crack on. And they do tend to be forgotten almost. 
Yeah, I think, I think that has changed, actually. I mean, in the last few years, there's been more awareness of the fact that uh, it's not just it's not, it's not just a racial thing. And, yeah. and, and what we don't want to get into is this idea that somehow white working class boys are being failed because of their whiteness mm-hmm. either. You know, there, there are problems with our education system. I, I actually, I think what's happening is that a lot of immigrant families are correcting and are intervening and are uh, you know, getting their kids to go to private tutors to correct for faults in the system. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's not unusual if you're going, you know, if you're driving around South London, um, you will see in shop windows adverts for maths and English tuition um, for immigrant groups. You know, there are Saturday schools. There's a very strong culture of supplementary schools in the Afro-Caribbean community, for instance. These are all to try and correct for what they perceive to be problems in the education system. And that hasn't been the case for a lot of white working class mm. communities. Um, but yeah, you know, we have to, I think we should focus our education system on, you know, supporting the people who are struggling, whatever their ethnic background. And to, for too long, we've racialized a lot of these problems. This is the preliminary. It's like uh, what Francis' question reveals and your answer is that we, we, we think in terms of race all the time now. Mm. And this way of thinking encourages white people to think about, well, well, if you're talking about these ethnic minorities, what about us? We are victimized in this area mm-hmm. or that area. And it's just like, and even if you don't agree with it, as I don't, like I was driving home the other day and there was a girl waiting to cross the road. And it was like one of those choice situations I could have driven or I could have let her pass. And I swear to God, I looked at her and she was black and I went, oh, she's black, I've got to let her through. You know, this is how we start to think. Mm. And it's crazy, isn't it? This is absolutely mental that we've, we've been encouraged to think in this way. Well done for not being racist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, even laughing about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, th- I think people change their behaviour and um, they're, they're on guard. There's a sort of sensitivity about mm. it. And it, in a, the, 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 the end result is that you end up treating people differently because they're race, and they know it. Yeah. So um, uh, I remember, um, I think I may have said it even at the Battle of Ideas session that I was at, that um, there was one writer, um, I won't name her, she wrote a blog, um, who complained that white people would come up to her and say how articulate she was. And she felt that this was an insult because really they weren't expecting her to be articulate because she's a black female. And I thought, you know, even when, when compliments are treated as some kind of you know, expression of racism, mm. you know, we're, there's literally nothing you can do. Everything you say. And it could be that they just thought she genuinely was articulate and mm. they were congratulating her for it. But people then become very defensive and afraid. Um, I, I remember reading a report um, a long time ago, it was a, I think it was in the, it was a, a, a report of the Met Police. It must have been about ten years ago, and they noted that um, that black police officers were more likely to be formally disciplined than white police officers in the Met. And there was a discussion in the paper about you know what was the driver behind this, and it turns out one of the reasons was because their superiors were so worried about having informal conversations with them mm. about problems that they felt they had to go through the formal means. And that's what happens. We don't trust our instincts. We don't trust how people will perceive. That we don't think that they will give us the benefit of the doubt. So we do everything in a much more formally, formally regulated way. So in the workplace, people are afraid of interacting with their colleagues in a particular way. Mm. You know, the, a word said incorrectly or a slightly insensitive remark, you know, where do you come from, uh, that kind of thing is now regarded as racism could get you discipline, you could end up in a racial grievance situation. You know, the, the workplace is, a, you know, essentially it's still a workplace. You know, you have a boss, they, they have the power to sack you. So the kind of informal social relationships that you need to be healthy in order for a civic society to be strong are being weakened by, you know, people's, you know, kind of 
desperation to jump onto anything as being potentially offensive. You wrote an article for Quillette, mm -hmm. which I think uh, got a lot of people's attention, including mm -hmm. ours. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who hasn't read it, we'll put it in, in, the, in the YouTube below. Mm -hmm. But tell us a little bit about what was the kind of the gist, the crux of your article for anyone who hasn't seen it. Well, the crux of the article was essentially was based on a conversation, essentially, I had with a friend of mine, a black friend of mine. And it was about how uh, we discuss race. When I say we, I mean black people. Uh, in public and in private, and how there's a big difference usually. And there are calculations which are made regarding what we should say in public and what we shouldn't say in public. These calculations are essentially based on how uh, many black people view our interests. So essentially, I'd say maybe on self-preservative instincts. Like I wrote in the article about how, okay, I was talking to this friend of mine, <clears throat> and he was complaining about black friend of his at the workplace who sort of, you know, plays the race card anytime there's a, there's a difficult situation with a white person, yeah? The friend is like, friend of my friend, is like, oh, you know, bring out the race card and most likely 99% of the time a white person will back down. Mm. <clears throat> so my friend told me, oh, he found, finds this disgusting, doesn't like it, this is completely wrong, etc. And in this conversation we're having, I said, yeah, exactly. So that's why we have to start criticizing this, you know, black identitarians and people sort of, you know, trying to essentially leverage uh, some of the horrors which our ancestors went through for some form of advantage today, mm. okay? But then my friend said, well, actually, um, uh, I don't agree with you on that, you know? And I'm like, you know, why? But you just said now that you don't like people uh, leveraging, uh, leveraging race like this. And he says, yeah, but actually, if you look at the big picture, you'll find out that, look, he says, look, let's think about it. How many of us black people are there here in the UK? Okay, about 5% of the population. Do we have a lot of economic and political power? No, we don't. Okay, that's the reality. Now, what is actually preventing the white population, about 87%, who control almost all the political and economic power, from actually dominating us overtly? My friend asked me. The only thing that's stopping them from doing that is the fear of being called racist. Yeah? Is political correctness, is the restraint which has been placed on them by society regarding how they should talk to minorities. Yeah? And he says that's the only saving grace we actually have. And he says, take that away, and what do we have? Take that away, and we could have a situation like we had in the 70s and the 80s, okay? where people on the road are you know, using the N-word freely mm. and don't feel afraid to do that because there's you know, no social ostracism, no social consequences from doing that. So they're gonna, people are going to be doing it. And he's like, what was interesting here, my friend, who is a very intelligent guy, very successful banker in city in London, and I said, it's not because, you know, white people are evil or something like that. But he said, that's simply human nature. If you put people in a position of dominance over another group of people, and they're not checks, okay, they are going to abuse that position. Mm -hmm. okay. So his argument is essentially that you need white guilt to protect minorities. Yes, that without white guilt, we'd be in a much more difficult situation here. And essentially, you know, white people sort of wouldn't um, uh, have any restraints towards, you know, talking to us anyhow, mm -hmm. or using, exploiting that advantage which they do have over us in numbers, in political power, in economic power, etc. So he's like, you know, that's the only restraint. So he sees that as a sort of necessary evil. He's mm -hmm. like, I don't like it aesthetically, 
Um, morally, I don't really like it, but I think we need it, you know, in order to protect ourselves because it's all we've got. If we let go of that, if we black people start criticizing identity politics, black identitarians, then and mainstream white society says, well, you know, since it seems that you know, even black people don't agree with these identitarians, then, you know, maybe why bother with this whole, you know, political correctness thing? Mm -hmm. And he's like looking at that in the long term, it's actually going to be bad for us. And what do you make of that argument? Sorry, Francis. Look, that argument, um, uh, I'd be lying if I told you at that argument, I was like, oh, that's rubbish. Uh, it's an argument which made me think. I actually, you know, started imagine, imagining certain scenarios. I started actually thinking, okay, fine. What if tomorrow now, you know, political correctness was simply, you know, dubbed unnecessary by mainstream white society, because there's obviously already a segment of society which says it's rubbish. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking of mainstream, majority, 60, 70% of the people. What if they actually said political correctness is rubbish? Actually, we should be able to say anything we like, more or less, uh, to black people, etc. Would that be a more uh, pleasant environment for me to live in, being a minority here in numbers? I can't imagine it being, mm. yeah, if that were to be the case, if it were to go in that direction that people would want to exploit that advantage. Uh, so, like I said, I couldn't, I definitely didn't, you know, think what my friend was saying was rubbish, but I thought about it, and the thing is, you know, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's naive or something, but based on my experiences with, especially people here in the UK, because I've had different experiences also in Poland, that's a different kettle of fish, but based on my experience with people here in the UK, I do believe fundamentally that a majority of the white population here does not have racist instincts and would not exploit to their advantage, yeah, if, you know, the whole race thing and the numbers advantage they have and the political advantage they have, if, say, political correctness theoretically was to disappear. That's what I believe, that there's a fundamental decency mm. in most people who live here. I believe that two, three hundred percent, based on experiences which I've had, based on experiences. I'm married to a Nigerian wife. My wife is 100 percent Nigerian. She's actually lived in the UK a bit longer than me, counting and the intervals and all that. And based on her experience also, you know, based on things we talk about, based on experiences of some other people, when we actually sit down and talk, because, you know, sometimes black people may complain about racism here. But, you know, when we sit down, when I say we, we, when we black people sit down in the room, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but guys, come on, you know, these people really, they're not that bad. They're actually pretty tolerant. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, they're actually pretty tolerant. They're like, yeah, yeah, of course we know, you know. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we can't, uh, we shouldn't sort of say that out. We sort of have to keep up that moral pressure, yeah, just to make sure they don't one day take it into their heads to start exploiting those advantages over us and treating us the way they used to treat us 20, 30 years ago. So it's not like people don't know this. It's not like a lot of people who might even, you know, retweet um, a black identitarians, you know, for lack of a better term, um, post on Twitter saying, maybe not the most radical ones, but let's just say something sort of insinuating that there's a lot of racism in, in the UK. It's not like every black person who retweets that actually really believes it's that bad. Mm. Okay, but it's just part of, you know, keeping up this pressure and part of, you know, trying to sort of um, secure, protect ourselves from this white power, which a lot of people actually fear, you know. And as I argued in the uh, in the piece, there's historical reasons, of course, for that fear. But doesn't the rise of something of someone like Trump in the U.S. Yeah. mean that their fears are actually well founded? Because 
although obviously I'm not black, I'm half Latin American. Yeah. And when Trump came out and did this speech and talked about Mexicans and said, you know, illegal immigrants, some of them are racist. Mm -hmm. uh, some, are, some are, sorry, some of them are rapists. Immediately, I had a sinking sensation inside. Mm. And if I went to the US in certain areas, I wouldn't feel comfortable speaking Spanish, which is my second language. Mm. Of course. And, uh, you know, there's no pretending. I know we'd be silly to pretend here that there's, you know, no such thing as racism. Oh, it's a very, you know, marginal thing, which, you know, only 5% of the white population, you know, um, uh, uh, subscribe to and all that. No, that's not the way it is. It's something which is very real and exists among uh, more than 5 or 10% of the white population in a standard, let's say, um, a Western society. So, of course, that exists. And Trump, paradoxically, uh, has only strengthened, you know, identity politics among minority, um, uh, minority sort of intellectuals, because they're like, see, we told you guys. You guys were saying these white people, you know, that um, they're not that racist, they're not that bad, etc., etc. Now, do you see? Look who they voted for. They voted for a guy who said all the things he said. So even the black people before, I focus here on black people, that's the community I know, obviously the other minority groups. Even the black people before who were sort of neutral or didn't buy into those narratives that, oh, essentially every second white person is racist, you know, sort of now feel sometimes a little bit silly, thinking, oh, actually, I was naive, yeah? It seems these white folk are actually pretty racist. I mean, they did vote for this Trump guy who said all those things. So, you know, maybe I was the one who was naive and not these identity politics guys, yeah? Maybe they were the ones who were right, yeah? And there's some others who say, yeah, well, of course, you know, Trump doesn't represent all white people, et cetera, et cetera. But since there is such a political force right now, we definitely need to stand on the side of our people, okay, and defend our people who are being attacked by this kind of politics. So even if we don't agree 90 or much less 100% with the black identitarians, we definitely need to hold the line with them because, you know, these are the guys fighting for us. Definitely Trump is not fighting for us. And the people who support Trump are definitely not fighting for us. Okay? So it's sort of a, it's, it's, it's bad for people like me. Bad is a strong word. It's difficult for people like me because now there's a line drawn, yeah? So it's a, you know, are you with them? Or are you with us? Yeah. Okay? Are you with the Trump folk who are saying the things they're saying? Or are you with us who are trying to, you know, sort of resist the Trump folk, you know? So it's, um, uh, it's tricky right now. You, you just wrote a col uh, recently co a column about how uh, white guilt is essentially become a perverse way of signaling your virtue and it's become almost white pride in a way because that yeah. sounds very counterintuitive what do you mean by that yeah it's all these people who who are constantly checking their white privilege and um you know they go online they go on twitter they go on facebook or they write articles and they say i'm white um i have to recognize that i'm a very privileged person i shouldn't speak over black people i shouldn't speak over women and so on um and I've, I've been watching this go on for a few years now, and I was thinking it's really strange because it, it's, it looks shameful. You know, they're very ashamed of being white. They're very ashamed of what they call white history and colonialism and empire and everything else. So they express this great shame, but they do it in such a showy, narcissistic, ostentatious way. Like, look at me, I'm so ashamed. And what you realise is that actually there's a real boastfulness to this checking of your white privilege, and they're really making a public display of it. So I think what's going on here 
is that this expression of white shame or this expression of white guilt has really become a new form of white pride. Because in essence, what they're saying is um, we are good white people. We're very socially and politically aware. We're switched on. We're sensitive to the crimes of history. We're sensitive to the needs and uh, interests of black people. Um, we're good whites. Not like those other whites, the uneducated ones, the uncouth ones, the ones who didn't go to Oxford University, the ones who don't read The Guardian, the ones who don't use Twitter. Um, they're the bad whites. So what you see is they're creating almost this new white nationalism, ironically, where they are demonstrating their decent whiteness in contrast, largely, to bad white people. So it's a very um, racially driven form of narcissism, I think, this checking of your white privilege. It's also, um, so not only does it demean bad whites, I think implicitly demeans bad whites, it also demeans black people because it's driven by this idea that black people are quite fragile uh, and therefore there are certain things you shouldn't say in their presence or there are certain things that we maybe shouldn't publish or there are certain speakers we shouldn't invite to campus because black people would disappear into a crisis of self-esteem, which I think is also a very racially driven, denigrated view of black people. So I think this idea that, whiteness is this all-powerful thing and it can even induce trauma in people because you know whiteness is this powerful force actually what that says is that white people are very strong and black people who might crumble if you say something racist or might crumble if you invite tommy robinson to your campus are very weak so it actually rehabilitates this politically correct um white guilt which is now incredibly fashionable actually recreates the idea that Whites are the adults with great power mm. to cause distress. And blacks are the children who might sometimes need censorship and other things to protect them from offensive ideas. I find it really repugnant. And that's one of the uh, examples of how identity politics, when you think hyper-racially all the time, you end up rehabilitating racial stereotypes. In this case, that whites are all-powerful and blacks are weak. Uh, and that's where this identity politics is taking us. It's taken us down a very dark alley towards the old racist politics that so many of us spend a lot of time trying to escape and, or, or to defeat. So what do you make of the concept of white privilege in general then? I think it's bullshit. I think it's, uh, it's, it expresses a very infantile way of understanding society and the dynamics within society. Um, <clears throat> do I think there's racism? Of course. Uh, but I also think racism is far rarer now than it was in the past. Um, I think it's become this minority pursuit among pockets of people, whereas in the past, and even I'm old enough to remember this, it was a fairly uh, uh, dominant um, ideology in Western societies. I think that's faded away, and that's all to the good. Uh, but racism, yes, racism still exists. But, but the white idea... privilege isn't about racism, sorry to interrupt. It's not about racism, it's the idea that you and I walking down the street will be treated differently to two black people walking down the street by other people, by shop assistants, by the police, by whatever. That's the idea of white privilege. Yeah, but that's not necessarily true. But the reason I think it's a, it's a very narrow way to understand society is because I think a far greater um, uh, influence on people's fortunes is class. And that's how I think is a far better way to understand society. So the idea that, you know, people say privileged white men, privileged white this, privileged white that. Um, the vast majority of white people don't have, don't enjoy any form of privilege and are actually quite poor or working class, the majority of them. Mm. Um, and the idea of white privilege is actually one that comes from a very um, 
privileged strata of society, which is academia and professors and um, all these kind of young people brought up in very middle-class homes who go off to university and come up with these theories about white privilege. So it's this very bizarre, twisted, ridiculous idea that, um, you know, these, um, like those black kids at Oxford who are all there on Rhodes scholarships. So they, they come from incredibly privileged backgrounds and they're on Rhodes scholarships at Oxford, the finest university in the world. And they spend the whole time going on about how privileged white people are. What, including the, the, the Polish white man who, who, who built the extension to your house? Or, uh, I don't know, the, the Turkish white man who cleans your toilet? Uh, what are we talking about here? There's a real uh, unwillingness to understand the complexities of modern society and the fact that, in my view, class remains the uh, deciding factor as to your fortunes and where you go and, and how successful you can be. Um, you know, this was really brought home by, there's a trans, there's a, a black trans woman called Monroe Bergdorf, and she gave an interview to The Guardian recently because she got in trouble because she said all white people are racist. And she gave an interview the, to The Guardian and she was explaining her concept of white privilege, and she said, even a homeless white man has privilege. And the justification she gave was that in comparison with a homeless black man, he's got more chance of getting out. And she didn't provide any statistics for that or anything like that. But the point is, she, came, she comes from an incredibly pr privileged background. Her mother was very successful in business. She had a lovely upbringing. She now has a very lovely life. And she is telling the man who lives under a bridge and is addicted to heroin and might starve to death any moment now that he enjoys privilege. That's how screwed up identity politics has become. And I think identity politics increasingly looks like the revenge of the elite and and it's a way for them to to fly in the face of all the evidence and to argue that they are the victims they are the great victims of life because you know the white man who's living in a skip has more privilege than they do it's utterly surreal i don't think it's sustainable and i think it's a very again it's a very poisonous argument because it divides society along racial lines when in fact i think the key divide in society is, is still um, on matters of wealth and class. That's very, very interesting how you, how you pointed that out. I, to me, I think that identity politics is actually a great one of the greatest dangers to freedom of speech in that people are unwilling to engage in debate yeah. because what people now do is they don't... Like you put forward that argument, but I know that there's a counter-argument to that which would just be, well, as a white man, yeah. you, you, you're not entitled to those views or opinions simply because you've never experienced the struggle in inverted commas. And therefore, completely denigrating your argument instead of actually engaging with the argument and putting forward a counter counterpoint of view, which is entirely reasonable. It's simply to attack the person speaking. And the moment you do that, I've, I, I think that all semblance of discussion and freedom of speech it just goes out the window. It's dead. Yeah, it's terrible because people's ideas and views are judged on the basis of their skin color mm. and or their genitals or whatever it might be, rather than on what they're actually saying which runs counter to every democratic liberal ideal, which is that you should hear people out, have the discussion, have an open discussion, and then work out as a society what's good and what's bad and where we should go and so on. So it runs, I completely agree, it's completely destructive of freedom of speech and open debate. Um, and what it does, it really causes people to clam up. So people feel that there are certain things they shouldn't say in public. Or, and lots of, when I go to campuses and so on, there's often white men who just are really unsure about whether they should say something in this meeting or they should just sit there and 
it was really brought home. There was some demonstration in the US a year or so ago, and there was this white man on it holding up a placard saying, I was going to write a placard, but I thought it was we've heard enough from white men, so I won't. And that was his placard, <laughs> <laughs> which is which I thought, well, apart from anything else, it's was a, still a fucking placard. Yeah, it's still a placard. So he's an idiot. But it was a very good. It was a very good example of how narcissistic this checking Absolutely. of white privilege is, because he was really saying, "I'm I'm a I'm the best white person in the world." That's what he was really saying. Mm. Um, but it's that thing of people close down and clam up. They're not sure what they can say, and so it gives rise to one of the great scourges of our time, I think, which is self-censorship and that uncertainty and that, well, can I say this? I've got white skin. I was born male. Um, am I allowed to say this or should I not say it? And you think what a destructive situation that is for, for us to find ourselves in. I think it also, the other side of it, it's not only that it is destructive for freedom of speech, it also really whips up this victim politics because you have this competitive victimhood now where everyone is trying to demonstrate that they are a greater victim than someone else. Because being a victim is now the way in which you win um, social praise, even in some cases um, government funding. You know, that's the basis on which lots of community groups win government funding is through saying we have all these various problems. Um, it's the way in which you win moral authority through being a victim. Whereas in the past, you might have won moral authority by demonstrating your autonomy and your adulthood and the fact that you were capable of governing your own life. Now, in a complete flip reversal, you win moral authority in 21st century Britain by sh showing your wounds. I'm a victim. I've had a really crap life. So what that does, it encourages people to constantly exaggerate and blow out of proportion the problems they faced. You know, uh, uh, and so I think there's a lot of myth making among some of these identitarians about how awful their lives have been. I don't mm. buy it for a minute because mm. they're encouraged to do that because they need that victim um, authority. And also it gives rise to this incredibly divisive competition between different groups. Well, we're bigger victims than you. And it has this fragmentary process even within identity groups. So even within, for example, trans, the trans community, as it's called, even there, people will say, oh, but you're a white trans person. I'm a black trans person and we have it worse than you. Or in the gay community, people will say, oh, but I'm Muslim and gay. That's far harder than some whatever Peter Tatchell's ever had to face. So it, this kind of complete... At breaking apart even of the identity groups themselves so that you end up with all these tiny sectarian blocks who just are constantly fighting for that moral high ground of victimhood so they can say well I'm the chief victim therefore I deserve the money and I deserve the newspaper column and I deserve the sympathy so um, that's really bad and, and and I think it's had a really destructive impact on the new generation in particular because I go to campuses and speak and I constantly meet these young people who have really plummy, posh voices, and you can tell they had really nice upbringing. And they want to convince you that they suffer from structural oppression, that they are they've <laughs> faced abuse and hardship every day of their life, that they are um, the most downtrodden community in living memory. And you just want to shake them and say that's not true. But of course, what you really should do as someone who cares about the future of society is it's check your privilege. It's check my privilege <laughs> and try and work out why they're saying this. Mm. Why are they saying these things which are patently untrue? And the reason they're saying them is because identity politics encourages you to see yourself as weak and pathetic, whereas left-wing politics in particular, but also right-wing liberal politics, used to encourage you to see yourself as confident and um, capable. 
And that shift is really worrying. As always, remember to subscribe to our channel if you enjoy it. And if you're already subscribed, remember to click that bell button next to the subscribe button so that you get notified whenever we release a fantastic interview like this. Well, we are on social media, so as always, follow us at TriggerPod. If you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at FadingHuman. And I'm at Constantine Kissin. Thank you again for watching or listening, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.